morning I'm continuing on with part two of a series that is looking at the seven scenes in Psalm 23. So we started this last week noting that Psalm 23 is broken down into seven distinct phrases that tell of the action, the present tense action of what God the Lord does for his people as our shepherd. So we began that last week, and today we're moving on to phrase number two. He leads me beside quiet waters. Now, I'm going to do this by looking like we did last week at other pieces of scripture that help reinforce that. So even though we are basing this on phrases of Psalm 23, we are actually looking at a few different passages of scripture. And I've got two of them noted today. So we're, we're going to spend our time split in half between two of these passages that are both then a springboard from the phrase in Psalm 23, he leads me beside quiet waters. The first one that we're going to do is a springboard that is a fast forward. It's going to bring us forward all the way to the end of the Bible, to Revelation. And then, after that, we're going to take a rewind, and we're going to go back to the Old Testament again and see how this scene that is pictured in these few words of Psalm 23 about being led beside quiet waters shows itself in other passages of Scripture. Okay? First, then, Revelation 7. Here's what it says there. I'm, I'm beginning at verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, Who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is at the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the first one we're going to look at. That comes forward in Revelation. Let me set the scene around this so that you're familiar with what this passage is talking about. In Revelation, the Apostle John sees this vision where he's caught up to the throne room of heaven. And what he sees there, this this goes back in Revelation, it begins in chapter 4 of Revelation, that John sees the throne room in heaven and he sees there a scroll and the angel tells him to take the scroll, but, but the scroll is held closed by seven seals or locks that are on it that must be broken open. And so in chapter 4 of Revelation and forward, the first six of those seals on that scroll are all broken away. Then between the sixth And the seventh, before the last seal is broken and the scroll is open, that's where we read this event that takes place in chapter 7 of Revelation. Where John sees this vision of all these people around the throne of God. And in fact, he numbers them. 144,000 people that are gathered around the throne of God, all wearing white robes and all with palm branches, praising God and serving him there. That's the scene that takes place here in Revelation. Last week, I mentioned a little something about the significance of numbers when we talked about seven, if you remember that. That we said last week that seven in the Bible often indicates symbolically God's active presence within the creation. 
right? When you see things in the Bible that happen in sevens, it usually indicates that God is actively doing something. There's divine activity on earth or within creation often. We got more numbers coming at us today then. So John sees this scene and there's 144,000 people gathered around the throne in heaven. That number, again, is symbolic. Well, it's symbolic in ways that require a little bit of math to take place. 12 times 12 times 1,000. Because if you were to read back through a little bit of, John, of Revelation 7, you'd find out that he names who these people are. 12,000 people from the 12 tribes of Israel. And he names them all there in that, in that passage in Revelation. 12 times 12 times 1,000. These numbers are significant as well. 12 in the Bible is a number that symbolically represents God's chosen people. So that's why in the Old Testament you would see that there are 12 tribes of Israel. It's symbolically a representation of the chosen people of God. That's why in the New Testament Jesus calls 12 disciples to follow him because symbolically that number is God's chosen people. So when you see a gathering of 12 in the Bible, symbolically what that usually points out to us is that this is a reference to the chosen people of God in some form. The number 1,000 in the Bible is a number that is symbolic for a really big number that no one can really count. So when things come in 1,000, it just means it's just a whole lot, more than we know. For example, in the Psalms, when you read in Psalm 50 that the Lord is the master of the cattle on 1,000 hills, it's not, well, which 1,000 hills are we talking about? It's all of them, all the cattle on all the hills. When you read in Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than 1,000 elsewhere, it's a, it's a reference that says it's better to be in God's presence one day than every single other day without God. It's a number that symbolically means all, everything, a big number, more than we can count. So, 12 times 12 times 1,000, all of God's people gathered there. And it's a number more than we can count. It's a number that symbolically means everybody, everybody's here going back all the way to the beginning of time and all the way forward to the end, all of God's chosen people from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the era in which we live now, all of God's people are represented in this scene in Revelation 7. They are all there. That's what John is pointing to with this number. That's the scene taking place. That's where the question comes from in this passage. John says, Who are, the the angel asked John, who are these people? And he gives them the answer. The answer, this is everybody. All of God's chosen people represented in this place. And beyond that, they are all wearing white robes. Robes that are white because they have all been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have all been made clean by the righteousness of Christ before God. So they come before him that way, representing then all of us, all of us who are a part of the church, all of us who are a part of God's people are included in that scene, that number before God. And then, then he gives the indication of what it is that God does for these people, his people, all of his chosen people. We read about that in the passage, right? 
Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Two things that are pointed out in those words of this passage then. Two things that show up here. First of all, it's God's provision that God provides for his people. But then secondly, it's God's comfort that he comforts his people. We see this in the way that John brings these words from Revelation 7. That the living water of Jesus there is is a fountain of righteousness which feeds our souls for all eternity. You know, it's not just something that quenches our thirst and feeds our hunger in in a real material way, but but there's something spiritual about this as well. It's not necessarily the indication of the Bible here that says, you know what, in paradise, you'll never have to eat or drink again because you'll never be hungry or thirsty. Remember that Revelation is a symbolic book. It's filled with imagery. And the symbolism of this then is one of spiritual feeding. That's what the message is here, that it is the righteousness of Christ himself which nourishes and feeds us as living water so that we always are full of his righteousness. We're never thirsting or starving for righteousness again. Remember that that is something that contrasts against the Old Testament way of doing it where the people of Israel had to go to the priests and give sacrifices over and over and over again because they would need to reclaim that clean righteousness over and over and over again. And we read in this passage then, you don't have to do that over and over again because in Christ you have had that once and for all, the living water given for us. He is our provision of righteousness before God. But then also our comfort, right? Those words that we also read in that passage about wiping away tears. It's a picture of God's comfort for his people. That God also, besides being the provision of righteousness for us, that he comes near and embraces. That he gathers his people as a shepherd gathers his flock and embraces his people. It's not just that he gives a a stamp of approval to say, righteousness, it's yours, now go. But he says, righteousness, I give you, now come. Be in my presence. That God himself comforts his people. That picture, that image of a shepherd and living water reminds us of that. But this is a scene that's taken place before. This scene around the throne in heaven. Even though John is giving us this picture of the throne room of God where all of God's chosen people are are symbolically represented there in the presence of God around his throne with the presence of God himself right there. That's something that has happened before. So I want to give us a rewind moment here to the Old Testament. The second passage that we're going to look at today comes from 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, where again we see a scene 
where all of God's people are symbolically represented around the throne of God. A little bit of context around this one. This is where Solomon is dedicating the temple in Jerusalem. And he, and he blesses the people then with these words. So this is from 1 Kings chapter 8. I'm just going to read a few verses beginning at verse 56. Solomon says this. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and keep his commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. So around this scene then, a, a scene that is echoed from Revelation 7. In fact, Revelation 7 in some ways is a recreation of this very scene in the Old Testament where Solomon dedicates the temple before God. Remembering how that came to be, that, that the people of Israel, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, that Joshua then brings them into the land of Canaan, and there is war that takes place as they come into the land of Canaan. That through the time of the judges, back and forth again, there is conflict with the pagan peoples who still reside there. That in the time of King Saul, there is conflict and strife among the people of Israel and conflict with the Philistines. That King David comes and he wipes out all the enemies that are there through war and through battle. And then it's when you get to Solomon, the son of David, that finally there is peace. And Solomon then builds the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And at that dedication of that temple, what happens there if you were to read all of what takes place in 1 Kings chapter 8? that the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, up to the temple and they place it inside the Holy of Holies, the inner room of the temple. And when they do that and the priests leave, once the Ark is in there, a cloud comes and descends and fills the entire temple, which is the symbol of God's presence there. That they know at that time, God, God Almighty, has taken up residence in the temple in Jerusalem. And Solomon then prays this long prayer of dedication that you can read in 1 Kings chapter 8. And at the end of that prayer, he turns around and he blesses all the people who are gathered there. Representatives, the elders from every single tribe of Israel who are there gathered in that place. That's the words that we read there from 1 Kings 8. That blessing that Saul gives to the people representing all the tribes, all of God's chosen people, there in the presence of God, before his throne in the temple. And what does Solomon say? What is the blessing that he gives? He begins it with these words, right? The words that I read. Praise be to the Lord who has given 
rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Rest. The blessing there is one of rest. It's a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is manocha. That's how you pronounce it. And it means rest. In all of the Bible, this Hebrew word manocha shows up only 21 times. So it's not a word that's used that often. Even though you read about rest in many other places of the Bible, this particular word is used in rather selectively when it comes as rest. Of the 21 times it shows up in the Bible, 15 of them are translated as rest. The rest of them are translated as various other words, as in Psalm 23, where manocha is translated as quiet, as in he leads me beside quiet waters. A connection there. A connection with this idea of rest in the presence of God as the shepherd of his people. But manocha as rest is not just rest that we would normally think of it. It's not the activity of resting. It's not the same as the Hebrew word Sabbath which means a a ceasing of activity. But in particular, manocha is a Hebrew word that refers to a place of rest. It's a location, a place where you find rest. The implication behind this is that God abides in a place where he gives his people rest. It's a place of abiding with God to receive the rest that God gives there. So, in this place where God gives his rest, we abide. And noting then, as we've noted from Psalm 23, that, you know, this is not, this is not either a fast-forward or rewind moment. Even though I've used a couple passages today to sort of give that illustration, moving forward to Revelation 7, moving backwards to 1 Kings 8, that we're talking about something in Psalm 23 that is not future-oriented and it's not past-oriented. It's not someday we'll find that. And it's not, you know, we remember a time when we used to have that, but Psalm 23 is present tense. It's now. The Lord is your shepherd now. He leads you beside quiet waters now. That there is something within this that tells us that God is our shepherd now. And we abide in his presence now. That he gives us what we need now. And so this place of rest, of abiding in God's presence is a place that has been given to us here and now in this world. This living water of Christ's righteousness that feeds our souls and purifies us to be clean before God is something we experience and have now in our lives, in the place where we are. So the picture we see then is one of finding that now. And what's the result? What's the takeaway from that? Well, the the result that comes to us in this passage in, in verse 60 from 1 Kings 8 is this. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. 
so that we may experience that living water of Christ, his abiding presence with us in a way where others would look and see and say, whatever it is they've got, whatever it is they found, I want that too. I want to know the Lord the way they do. To know his nourishing living water that way, his abiding presence that way. You know, the, the landscape in Israel is very different than it is here in West Michigan. It, we're here where it's just flat and it's wet everywhere. In Israel, it's very rocky and hilly and it's very dry. So it's, it's, a, it's a contrast that you see here when it talks about springs of water or living water. That water in Israel would function a little bit differently than it does maybe we think about it here, where there are ponds and lakes and streams and rivers everywhere. But in Israel, they would have it to where they would have stretches of of land which would have no water at all. There'd be nothing there. So you could very easily find find yourself in places in the land of Israel where you could starve to death of, of having no water, of thirst, that you would die of thirst. But then you also had moments where the rains would come, the storms would come across there, and because of the landscape, because it's rocky and hilly, that that the water would all flow and funnel and go down these valleys and ravines and through what's called a wadi or a dry riverbed. And the water would all funnel through there, and then it would come crashing through as a torrent that, that would sweep everything away in its path. That if anyone was caught up in that raging flood, that they would be swept away and drowned. So you you live between these two extremes there, the the extreme of having no water at all. It's so dry and it's so parched that you may die of thirst. Or the extreme of such raging water, such raging flood, that it would destroy everything in its path. And among those two extremes, God comes as the shepherd who says, but I give living water, water that is quiet, manochah, a place of rest for you to abide. So in the world that we live in, a world which sometimes puts us in those two extremes, right? Sometimes we find ourselves in a world where it feels like we are dry, parched, starving, alone, isolated, cut off. In those moments, God calls us to his living water. In those other moments of our lives, in the moments of the world where we may feel that we are in a place of a raging flood, attacked, destroyed, overwhelmed, stressed, pulled under a current of bitterness. In that world, God also says, come and abide in my place of rest by living water. So what do we need to do? What do you need to do this week to abide in the place of God's rest within the living waters of Christ's righteousness? What do you need to do this week to to find that space? Not that you need to go looking for God, not that you need to go somewhere else, but in a place where God has already said, I'm here for you. I'm with you. I nourish you. What do you need to do this week to abide in that place? To be fed 
by the nourishment of God through his grace. Find time in his word. Find time to maybe connect with some others. Find time to to journal about that if that's something that helps you do that. Find time to sing or listen to worship music. Find those times and spaces in your life in which you can say, I'm abiding by the quiet waters because the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that in all the ways that our world may either leave us dry and parched and empty, and in all the ways in which our world may sweep us away in a flood of anxiety, that you are the shepherd who comes and gives us rest by quiet water. So, Lord, we pray then today that you would lead us there in ways that remind us that you abide with us, you go before us, that you are our shepherd, and you never let us go. We thank you for that, and we pray that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.